Thanks, Adrian. Just checking everyone can hear me at the back. That's great. Smiles doesn't necessarily mean um, audible, so. Uh, who here has heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? There's a few hands. Uh, basically, it was an experiment in the 70s, and a group of scientists basically got uh, a bunch of kids, 50 in all, and this is how it worked. There was a kid in the room, and what they did was that they placed them in front of a table, and in front of that table was a single large marshmallow, and they had a choice. You could eat the marshmallow now, or you could wait 15 minutes, and if you were patient and showed self-control, in 15 minutes, if the marshmallow was untouched, you could have two. If you want to procrastinate and be entertained for three minutes, there's video footage of the kids waiting for those 15 minutes, and it's quite a fun three, minute, uh, uh, three minutes to watch. One kid was so desperate that after a few minutes, she decided to rest her head and proceeded to fall asleep. It was testing the idea of delayed gratification of patiently waiting. And I can't help but think it's an appropriate illustration of so much that happens in life. Uh, you could choose to spend your money every day on lunch. Not that that's a bad thing, looking around. Or you can choose to save. And in 20, 30 years time at this rate, you might have a deposit for an apartment. Talk to Jackie, he's a, a broker, right? For his part-time job. Uh, you could work full-time now. Many of you could do that. Why do you study? And it's not meant to be a question that causes an existential crisis. Why do you study? It's because in the hope that despite all the hard work, despite all the exams and assessment, hard work now will lead to a better future. That is, there's a virtue to patient waiting. And I can't help but think that that is also true for those who choose to follow Jesus. There's tremendous promises given to us in the Bible. Uh, we may feel like a mess, we may feel like a mix of good and bad, but those who follow Jesus are promised not just forgiveness, but renewal, that we won't even be tempted by sin. There's suffering now, there's grief, there's relationships that fall apart, but we're, we're promised a whole new world no mourning, no tears, no relationships that we wish were different. There's promises of glory with God for eternity. But here's the thing. We can't see them. It's not like a marshmallow that's visible and tangible that's right before us. It's not even like hoping for your uni holidays to come. Or I discovered uh, this week that if you work in Canberra for seven years, you get long service leave. Somehow even those things seem more tangible. But the promises we have in the Bible that God gives us, they seem lofty. They seem far away. And the question before us this afternoon is can we trust them? The promises we have given us to us in the Bible, how do we know that they will come true? Uh, we're beginning a new series for the rest of this semester here at Focus, and we're looking at a book of the Bible called Exodus. Uh, it's a history of a tiny nation, Israel, 
It's kind of like a Hamilton story, if you like. It's the founding of a nation, and we're at the very beginning of this nation. Uh, now, if you look at your outline, we read Exodus 1, but you'll see another outline there, Exodus chapter 2 we'll read later. If you turn around, there's a few passages. And at the very beginning of this nation, God gives them a promise. Uh, it's one of those passages in your outline, it's Genesis chapter 12, and God makes a promise to one man, Abram. Uh, Abram's like the founding father of Israel. He's kind of like the George Washington figure, if you like. And God says this to him, Jake. It's on your outline, verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We've been talking about promises and God makes a promise to a na- He promises to make a nation from this man, Abram. And I have a question for you to talk about. It's basically a comprehension question. Talk to the people around you. Read Genesis 12. What are the key ingredients of this promise? Okay? He makes a promise to Abram. What is part of this promise? Go for it, and we'll come back in about two, three minutes' time. All right, it's about a few minutes. Uh, let's come together. Um, what did you guys have? What are the promises that God makes to this man? Put your hands up. Dob your friend in. Any thoughts? Jackie, what do you reckon? <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> a great nation, yep. He promises to make from this one man a great nation. Yep. Any other thoughts? There was a hand down here before. Emmy? Oh, I was going to say, it's not promise, but like, Abraham has to go. Hmm. Yeah. He has to go. He goes from the country to the land that he will give him. So there's a nation, but there's a promise of land. I'm going to give you land for this nation to live in. Um, other things that people came up with. Blessing. Blessing, yep. It won't just be a nation with land, they'll be blessed. And anything else, Kayla? Yeah, the whole world will be blessed. And so, from this one man, you're going to get this multiplication effect. There's got to be many people that come from this one man. They'll be in a land, and they'll be blessing through this, uh, through this man. By the time we get to Exodus, this nation is forming. So Abram has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. And when we get to Exodus chapter 1, have a look there in verse 5 on your outline. Jacob is mentioned. Okay? Abram, Isaac, Jacob. And have a look. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. So one man in three generations becomes 70. And they just keep multiplying. By verse 7, have a look. They're exceedingly strong, filling the land. The nation is forming. But there's just this one problem. They're in someone else's land. They're in Egypt. And what was one of God's promises to Abram? That there will be a nation in their own land under God. And so the question before us, as the book of Exodus begins, 
is whether God will come true to his promises. He's made a promise to them. They're in Egypt. Can he keep them? Who here studies international relations? There's a few. There's four. What follows in this chapter is an international relations nightmare. Verse 8, there's a new king. And a new king sees the nation of Israel as a problem. You have to feel for Israel here. There's no hint that they took the Egyptians' best jobs. There's no hint that they took their best lands. In one sense, Pharaoh here is acting on this hypothetical possibility on the off chance that they might join their enemies and escape. And you get a sense of who Pharaoh is. And so, he enslaves the nation. Verse 11, he puts taskmasters over them. He gives them heavy burdens. But it doesn't work. It seems like the more they give him, the more they just multiply. And so in terms of international relations, what we have here is escalation. We have this tiny nation versus this mighty superpower. And the question we're confronted with once again with such an evil tyrant is whether God can keep his promises. Especially to this nation. Will they ever be free? It's at this point the narrative zooms in on two seemingly insignificant characters. The midwives. Uh, Great leaders in history are to be remembered. When I occasionally run across the central loop of Lake Burley Griffin, uh, within six kilometers, I pass a statue of Robert Menzies. Uh, There's a little island, Queen Elizabeth II Island, where the Carillion is situated. Uh, There's on the foreshore uh, all these plaques dedicated to previous Australians of the year. Names are important. Great people are named, and they are remembered. Yet Pharaoh, the king of this great superpower, we're not given his name. What we are given are the names of two seemingly insignificant characters. These two Hebrew midwives, verse 15, Shipra and Puah. We have to ask why. Why does the Bible choose to record their names? Pharaoh tries the tactic of stealth. He tells the midwives, when you see a Hebrew son, kill him. And it's population control at its most gruesome here. If you were them, what would you do? Uh, When your boss tells you that he's going to pay you in cash so he can avoid paying taxes... Do you take that? When you see your friend cheating and he asks you to turn a blind eye to what he's doing, do you turn a blind eye to what they're doing? That is, who do we fear? Do we fear God? Or do we fear man? Who do they fear? Well, have a look. The midwives... They choose to side with God. Verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, and that the male children lived. They're named, I think, 
because they're a model for us on how to live. When the only visible outcome is punishment by Pharaoh, they nevertheless trust in God. And God blesses them. Verse 20, Israel keep multiplying. Verse 21, he gives them families. They're given names because of their trust in God and God rewards them. Let's keep going. Pharaoh's secret plan backfires. What will he do? Well, he does what he's always done. It's escalation. The private plan becomes public. Verse 22, the whole nation is in on it. And every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And we're left at the end of this chapter with the question that we started with. Will God keep his promises? Can he keep his promises? And we're going to read Exodus chapter 2. So Adrian, you want to come up again? And we're going to keep going with this story. It's coming down.